Uh, my name is Randy, for those of you who do not know me, and I'm one of the elders here, and I'm excited to teach uh, this morning with you guys. But I want to start off with a dialogue before we get into the text. And, and the question I have for you, um, and I want to hear responses, what describes your deepest, dearest, closest friend? Or another way to say it, how would you characterize your best friend? So as you have a thought in your mind, please raise your, you can just raise your hand and I'll call on you, you can share it. Go ahead. Inside jokes, all right. Yeah, there's that kind of familiarity where you feel comfortable saying that kind of stuff. Loyal, very loyal to one another, committed. What else? Have fun even when you're doing nothing, really just enjoying one another's presence, just being around each other. Good, what else? Trust, there's a lot of trust there. Uh, Don. Whoa, all right. That's not all friendships there. (laughs) Whisper sweet somethings in my ear. I like that. (laughs) Intimacy. Uh, Kobe, that's great. And, and that's even like uh, going back to just loyalty and trust to where e- even if someone knows the worst about you, there's still a love and acceptance there. It's good. Honest, okay. You trust their honesty. What they say is really true. All right, hey, come on. You're taking us home. You're, you're giving the answer already. We can't, we can't go there yet. Jesus seems to be like a really good friend. He kind of is doing all this stuff that we're talking about when we read about him in the Gospels. So here, here's what I want to do. Um, the things we've been talking about is basically someone you can completely trust, someone you feel safe around, someone who has uh, full integrity, and um, you can just be yourself around them. Um, they're apt to just listen and, and bend an ear towards you. This is the kind of friendship God desires to enter in with us, with you today. It's that personable, it's that relational. He, he wants that sort of intimacy with us today. Except it's, it's much more intimate, and it's way more transform, transformative. And so what we're going to do today, as we're looking at this passage, within our teaching today, I'm actually going to take the first three verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then the last two verses, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, I'm trying to make this as least complicated as possible, and I'm going to take those, and, and really, what I'm going to do today is summar, just summarize them within the teaching. So I'll get to it eventually, but it's just going to be really short in order to focus and give more attention to verses 4 through 10 within our passage in chapter 4. And here's why. In my studies and in my time of prayer, I'm convinced this section is the heart of the letter. Everywhere else in the letter, James is using these moral exhortations to live a different life in community, except here in verses 4 through 10. He is going Old Testament He's bringing the prophetic call to return to God away from the world. To turn away from a half-hearted commitment, one foot in, one foot out kind of relationship, to a wholehearted devotion to God is what he's doing. Where friendship with God is the closest and the most important friendship we could ever have. And the questions we need to wrestle with that James is going to take us to, how do we maintain a relationship with God who will expect nothing less than a wholehearted committed relationship? How do we do this in a world that tells us to commit to other things or people more than God? And and when we have within us these desires for other things more than God. And that's what James is going to go after. That's what we're going to tackle in that main section of this passage, chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. And James, we see in verse 4, he starts off in our central passage this morning with very upbeat words. You adulterous people. I looked it up in the Greek and it means that. Adulterous means adulterous. So uh, 
James goes from calling those he is writing to brothers, and he even uses my dear brothers in the earlier chapters, to adulterous people. We don't really have to guess that James is really trying to get their attention. And before we write James off as possibly having just a bad day when he's writing a letter, not doing well, let's not forget that Jesus, he uses the same language about his own people, the Israelites. In Matthew 12, 39, he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. And the Old Testament provides us a helpful context to why this language is being used. The relationship between God and his people was consistently actually compared to a marriage relationship. Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 6 says, For your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, and the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in the spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. So God is portrayed as the husband and Israel as the wife. And this is why when Israel commits idolatry, she is said to be committing adultery. Idolatry equals adultery. Pursuing other gods is betraying her true, her true lover for another. Hosea, actually, in the Old Testament, highlights this imagery really powerfully. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with, with the story, but God commands Hosea this guy, to marry a prostitute so that the prostitute, his wife's unfaithfulness to Hosea would clearly and painfully reveal to Israel, the nation of Israel, Israel's unfaithfulness as a people to God because of Israel's pursuit of foreign gods, other gods. Really painful. And like a committed marriage relationship, so too God has designed relationship with him to be one where there's a wholehearted, devoted relationship. And we see this actually carry over into the New Testament, God's relationship with the church, and how, for instance, Paul describes our relationship with God and Jesus. One example is in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a virgin, a pure virgin to Christ. Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Therefore, what James is saying in verse 4 is that those of us, if we can have that verse 4 back up, is that those of us who are claiming to be Christ's bride, when we pursue friendship with the world, we are committing spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world equals spiritual adultery. And in the last several weeks, we've learned several issues James addresses in this letter that kind of typify this idea of friendship with the world. And I'd love for us, just as a refresher, you can even look through your Bible and look at the last few chapters, or if you remember some of the teachings, just to kind of highlight what are some of those things that James pointed out that are not in line with God in the way we should be, we should be living. What are, what are some of those things that we've learned in the, la- in the last several weeks? Just call them out. Partiality, yeah, valuing others more than, valuing certain people over others, which is not in line with how God's value system works with his kingdom. Value comes much different. All right, what else? Avoiding, yeah, doing everything you can to avoid trials and suffering, not wanting your, your faith to be produced in steadfastness. Okay, what else? Yep, words we use. Using words that hurt people. Uh, reveal a partial commitment to God who calls us to use words to bless people and build life because that's what God himself does. Okay, anything else? Selfish ambition. We try to seek God's wisdom at times, but for selfish, 
for self and self-advancement and just uh, being ambitious for the sake of self when God's wisdom is about seeking peace and the benefit, blessing others. So we talked about some of those things. We've also, um, well, let me go ahead and highlight what we're not going to be talking about today, those two passages, those two sections. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, what's being highlighted there is pursuing selfish pleasure that is destructive. Self-serving passions is what causes fights. It's what causes quarrels amongst each other. And so if we want to come to God and ask him and, and, and get guidance from him, But what James is saying in that part, it's no use because you're coming to him in order to serve your own passions, which is producing more dysfunction in the community. That just doesn't work itself out. You're not really coming to God with the right passion for God's sake and his glory. And then the last part, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 of our passage, if you speak evil against your brother, what James is saying there, then you're really speaking evil against the law. You cannot say you uphold the law all you want, but if you're speaking evil against someone else, you're a friend of the world. You are not upholding, you're not speaking true of the law. You're speaking evil of God and his law. And so you're really a friend of the world, though you're kind of imposturing yourself as a friend of God. So our behaviors and heart motives, it shows us who we are really in a committed relationship with. Does that make sense? That's what James is getting at. Sometimes we can speak casually about friends in our culture, but this was not the case in James's day. Friendship had to do with sharing all things with one another and being deeply committed to each other. And God has shared himself fully with us. But we, at times, only share partially ourselves with him, and it reveals we are not really committed to God at all. That's what James is highlighting. It says if, for example, if a married person woke up one day, we're all married in this room. If you're not, you are. Just, just play this out. As if you're a married person, you woke up one day, and out of the blue, your spouse comes to you and wants to have an, have an open marriage. Allow other people to pursue other people as well as stay married. They love you, want to still keep things going, but they want to keep their options open and see if there is anyone else out there that can also bring more fulfillment in the relationship. Like, just sit with that for a moment, you know? Like, it feels kind of, even if you're not married, you can feel that. It's off. And James goes into how, why I believe he goes into the next verse, in verse 5, how God is jealous over us. Because he feels that. He feels that. So James says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Jealous. Now there's a little bit of a disagreement in my studies I found as to whether or not the word spirit is referring to the human spirit God creates in all people. There's a soul spirit in us that he puts in us or the Holy Spirit that he puts inside believers. In light of the context in my studies, I actually believe he is referring to the human spirit God puts puts in us in creation. And I think what's being communicated here by James is God made all humans for intimacy with him and to worship him alone. You might Think of a passage just came to my mind that Jesus says, we worship him in spirit and truth. That spirit passage is like, he's designed us, hardwired us to, to, to long for God and to, and to worship him. And now here's the deal. When our human spirit is looking elsewhere, it triggers God's jealousy. He is jealous for a wholehearted, committed relationship. Exodus 25, or 20, verse 5 says it like this about God's jealousy. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And he's referring to foreign gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God loves intensely and exclusively. He won't let up on expecting and calling us to that sort of committed relationship. God made us, and he, he wants all of us. Your physical feature, he wants everything about you. He, he's, he's jealous over his creation. Now, that can be super intimidating and overwhelming, considering how often I, and maybe you guys are in agreement with this, can tend to not be as committed to the relationship with him, right? And this is why it's such good news that God gives more grace, as James says in verse 6. Really good news. He says he gives more grace. He doesn't give to us what we truly deserve. But instead, grace is he freely gives us what we truly need and long for. What is that relationship with him? And it's given through grace, by grace. He has supplied us all we ever could need in his son Jesus to have this relationship because it is based on Jesus' faithfulness and his commitment. See, the best friendship is one that is freely given because of Jesus. Meaning we, we, we didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. And here's, let me, let me give a little illustration of why this is important. Thursday morning, woke up. I woke up feeling down and out about a number of things. Um, just if some of you guys that don't know, I'm experiencing dizziness and still working through that, as well as I was feeling sad for myself um, and the di- just other difficulties in life right now with having three kids and another on the way. And I, I remember being in the shower and I was bummed thinking about poor decisions I've even made and kind of having a session of beating myself up and feeling utterly inept as a leader, just to be really honest with you, struggling. And the small whisper, I love that example, uh, someone said whisper, and I heard God just start speaking affirming words over me. And what was so amazing, he wasn't just calling me child, he was also saying specific things to the things that I was beating myself up about. And what he thought about me, and what he thought about specific situations, and how pleased he was. I was deeply encouraged, filled with unmeasurable love. We get that relationship with God, that intimacy, and it's free. You don't beg, you can't plead, you can't try to do a bunch of things to God in order to get it. He just, he offers it. He offers it. But as James makes very clear, God's grace, it calls for a response. That's the, that's, that's the question. So the deeper question to are we friends with God or not is the question, will we respond to the grace, to the relationship that he offers for free? Will we respond? This is why James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the what? Humble. And right after that, he says in the first half of verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. And the last verse of our key passage in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humility is key. It's the basis of our friendship with God. Friendship with God is the best and more important relationship of our life, and it begins and grows by responding to God's grace with humility. So what does humility look like? What does it look like to respond in humility? It's a very important question. And I, I break it up into three categories here. I don't know if all you guys can see that. But the first one is realizing my greatest need is spiritual intimacy. 
That we, apart from Christ, are spiritually impoverished and can't get it on my own. And even sometimes we're walking with Christ. I wasn't feeling very spiritually fulfilled in, my, in the shower on Thursday morning, I'll tell you that. That on my own, I'm spiritually lost. My ultimate longing is intimacy with God. That is humility. For those of us who have faith in Jesus, here's the reality. We've been given a new identity. James 1, we talked about that. It says we were made, God's gift, he made us into new creatures where we can commune with God. Being a new creature means we have the ability because the Spirit is in us because of what Jesus has done to bring about a communion, a union between us and God through Jesus. And that is where we realize we need most and, and don't want anything to hinder that unity, that relationship. You see, being united to Jesus, it means we're able to be friends with God. And that is the most, like spiritual intimacy, we realize, is the most important thing. The second thing, and what it looks like to respond in humility, is we acknowledge that I can do nothing without God. I need God's help for all of it. Not 5%, 10%, 100%. There is nothing I can do apart from God's presence and power in my life. Do you, do you feel that? Do you say that? Do you know that? God himself, he needed to come to me in my moment in the shower. I wasn't praising God. I wasn't doing a bunch of holy things. I was down and out. And God comes in. It wasn't me building myself up with a bunch of words. Even truthful words. I needed God to speak it to me. We need God to speak to us, and he wants to. It's his power. It's his presence that changes everything. I needed to acknowledge him, and, and, and that I couldn't fix my situation by trying harder. In fact, I believe God actually is even using my state right now that I'm currently in of dizziness to help me learn to walk this out. In, in some ways, I'm, my spiritual eyesight, my physical eyesight's going kind of off because things are spinning, but my, my spiritual eyesight's becoming clear. He's using it. Through my recent physical limitations, God's helped me realize the strength of his spirit is not my, by, by our abilities. It's by his might. And the passage that keeps coming to my mind, even right now, is Zechariah 4, 6. And maybe this is for some of you guys. I keep saying this, feeling like spirits reminding me of this again and again. Coming to my mind all week, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It is completely God. He wants to do everything. His power is so available. Are we acknowledging his presence and power to acknowledge we need it? And then the third thing is a desire to submit to God's will above all else. Above all else. We know that you can read 1 Corinthians 15, 27, 28, or Ephesians 1, 20 to verse 23. God has put all things under Christ. All things under Christ to be Lord of all until God's redemptive plan is, is finished. He knows what is best. God in Jesus is the perfect judge and savior. So why would we go to anyone else? Why would we submit our lives to anyone else other than the perfect savior and judge of all? But there's more than just that. It's not just safe, because that is a safe choice, right? But also, when we are hidden in Christ, our new identity is in Jesus, it's what God made us to do. He's made us to obey him. When we are being friends with the world, we're actually not living out our true identity God's already given us. You guys get what I'm saying? We talked a little bit about baptism. Romans 6. Read Romans 6. It's such a great picture Paul uses of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. We we identify with Christ's death, which is a picture of being dunked under the water, and we come out of the water, and it's a picture of being alive with Christ, where you're a brand new creation. 
And the point, the reason why Christ died and he makes us new is because we're no longer enslaved and being slaves of unrighteousness, but Romans 6 says we're slaves of righteousness. There's abundant righteous fruit that God wants to produce in and through us. And he gives us new desires to want that. So humility, responding in humility looks like desiring to submit to God's will above all else because that's who he's made us to be. And if we don't have a desire to obey God above all else, we should be concerned where our state of relationship is with him, whether we know, if we know him at all. You see, everything in between the phrases that are bookending between verses 7 and 10 tells us implications of what it looks like to walk out this humility, these three aspects. The second part of verse 7, James says, as, as he talks about some of these implications, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submitting ourselves to God means we are rejecting the authority of Satan. However powerful Satan may, may be, humble submission to God overcomes Satan's power he could ever use against us. This is important because Satan's main goal is to hinder and confuse our relationship with God. That's what he's out to do. And Satan wants to derail us into thinking that our greatest need is something other than spiritual intimacy with Jesus. He loves to throw uh, financial stability. It becomes way more important than intimacy with Jesus. Uh, looking good in front of others or appearing wise among your colleagues or coworkers is more important than intimacy with God and Jesus. Or it's knocking out your very important projects or your to-do list or just being the most successful person in your job is more important than intimacy with God and Jesus. Satan loves to play with us in the, with those games and we, we take and receive it and follow. The devil loves to make us think that getting ourselves humbly before the Lord, reading, meditating day and night in his word, we just humble ourselves before his word and look to just partake and receive as foolish, outdated, and just silly. It's a waste of time. Satan loves to blind us with that. He wants to make us believe it is up to us to carry the weight of our problems, not God. It's ultimately up to you to be a good employee. It's up to you to be a good boss, a good leader, a friend. It's up to you to be a good husband. It's up to you to be a good wife. It's up to you to be a good parent. It's up to you to be a good Christian. That's why James says in the part of verse 8, he then says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, realizing... I'm in desperate need for spiritual intimacy, that I need God's help in all things, and I, and, and I desire to follow God, God's will above all else, ought to lead us to seek after God because it isn't all up to you. It isn't all up to me, and it's not about us. It's not about you. It's all about him. It should lead us to continually seek after God. That's the key implication we're getting here from humble submission. Seeking after him by paying attention to our lifestyle. We talked about these different ways where James is being clearly practical on what it looks like to live a life that's pleasing to God. How we're caring for the poor. How we're controlling our tongue and growing in wisdom and peace and community. Seeking after God looks like actually paying attention to that and seeing where we're at with God because we want to please him. It's a desire to learn to do the things that are, are pleasing him because we desire greater intimacy with him. Seeking after God is seeking him in communion with him in prayer. 
The Bible talks about a lot about waiting on him, waiting on the Lord to speak and guide. The fear is and the feeling is, I don't want to do anything apart from knowing that this is God's plan, that God is calling me to this. I don't want to go anywhere without him. My life is to follow him no matter what. We are to seek, seek. And then James hones in on a key way. We are to draw near and seek after God. And he brings us into repentance. And he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James here is using language that comes out of Old Testament priestly purity rituals when Israel's priests were ministering the things of the Lord in the temple. And cleanse your hands, is he's referring to um, external behavior. We should have a slide for that. And purify your hearts, he's referring here to internal attitude. And what James is saying, drawing near to God consists of repenting from any behavior and internal attitude that is not in line with God. Repentance, what he's saying here, is meant to be a turning of the total person back to God. In other words, the goal in repentance is God, it's restoring a healthy relationship with him. Repentance is not, which I think many of us can tend to struggle with, just merely stop doing a bad behavior and start doing a good behavior. Does that make sense? Like think about, like, we, like there's something like whether it's being angry at your wife or angry at your kids or selfishly ambitious for your job and wanting to change. It's, it's not merely stop those things and then now start living a life where you're not doing that anymore. That's not repentance. That isn't repentance. Here's why. Because as you're trying to work that out and do the better thing, Try to, okay, I gotta stop being so selfishly ambitious. I gotta stop. Who, who am I focusing on as, as I'm working that out? Who am I focusing on? Me, self. Yeah, it's all about me. You see, then it's all up to me, and it's all about me. That's not repentance. It's not groveling. It's not head down, beat yourself up session. Beating yourself up, walking around beating yourself up because of the way you're living your life to try to live a better life. It's making it all about you. You see, James is making it very clear to his readers that any wrong behavior and any sort of wrong internal attitude is a rejection and betrayal against God. And here's why it's really important to know that he, God is the one who is ultimately wronged. That you can, we can't be both friend of the world and friend with God at the same time. That it's double-mindedness. Why, why is James is getting so clear about like, the, the seriousness of this is because we need to realize that we really need to be cleansed and purified. We need to be cleansed and purified because we're not just, it's not merely about our behaviors and trying to do better, be better people. We need to be cleansed and purified by God. This happens, and this happens only through the cleansing and purifying power of Jesus and his blood. By the blood of Jesus, cleansing and purifying us wholly, and completely, we don't have to make up for our failures by trying better or trying harder. Does that make sense? In fact, you can't. That's why Jesus had to die. To do that is to kind of be ashamed of the cross or to minimize the work that God did on the cross. We get to now be honest about the worst of us. We talked about that intimacy and friendship as we are talking about at the beginning of this message. Talk about the one who fully knows you, God himself, God Almighty, the one who created you, and yet fully accepts you. 
That's what Christ's blood does, purifying and cleansing us. Because he imputes to us, he gives us his righteousness, meaning we're free and fully forgiven. We can confess the worst of us, the worst of our sins, our brokenness. We're healed. And not only that, we have his power dwelling within us. You see, repentance is a gift that God gives us. It's not a bummer, it's a gift that God gives us to enhance and deepen relationship and intimacy with him. The point is to draw nearer to him because he already is near to us. He's in us. And he wants to awaken us up to the reality that he's not against us, he's for us. And that he's with us. He wants us to wake up to the good news. That he's made us new in Christ. And that's why, and and then you got James, he adds this piece. He adds this piece in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Wait a second, Randy. It now sounds like you're saying you got to beat yourself up. This too can be found in the Old Testament prophets. James, what he's doing here is calling the community to the need to take our sins seriously. Laughter is often the mark of the fool in the Old Testament and Jewish literature. A person who goes on about life concerned more with selfish pleasure than living a right life. The joy James is talking about is the superficial joy. He's not saying don't have any joy. He's talking about a particular kind of joy here. And it's a superficial joy that comes when we indulge in sin. And James is correcting any view that we might have that might casually look upon sin or might look to minimize sin. Ways we can find ourselves minimizing sin, it could be hiding from others because internally you're saying you're going to do it better next time. That's minimizing sin. You, you think it's, it's going to be up to you to change your situation, your circumstance to get better. Making excuses, convincing yourself that it's okay. Just telling yourself it's all right like with no conversation at all to God. You might say, I, I know I messed up and I have tons of sin issues. Maybe this, this might be you. You're really good at saying you're really broken and needy, but nothing can change. You have something in the back of your mind that says, but nothing can change. It's just the way I am. God can't really do nothing about it. This is just how, how, how I'm made. Or maybe you even keep on doing sinful behaviors and you allow your attitudes just to go unchecked. It just, it just it, it, it goes unchecked. Heartfelt sorrow, what James is saying, for sin is an important mark of true repentance. And the reason why you wouldn't grieve sin, I think what James is saying, is because you're, you're, you're loving it more than being a friend with God. You're loving being a friend with the world. Sin is serious because sin hurts our relationship with God. I, I hope we get that. This is why sin is so serious. See, loving sin, it doesn't make sense in light of a new relationship we've been made to have with God through Jesus. Being a new creation Sin entering into that, it, 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 it's not who we were made to be. We, we, he, he took us from being enemies to being his children. We're his children. In fact, let, let me illustrate this. My, the greatest moments I've had with the Lord, some of the greatest moments i had is when I'm staring sin in the face. My sin, my sin, my junk, my mess, right in the face. And I hear the Father say, you are my beloved son. In you I'm well pleased. Have you ever had that? You look at your junk in the face and you hear the Father say, you are well pleased. That's what Christ did. He calls our new identity out even before we humble ourselves so that we would humble ourselves. Is that making sense? And then I say, wait, wait, God, no, you can't. You've got to be off. We're not supposed to be doing this bad stuff. Why would you love me in such a way? There it is. You get it. So you would praise me. So that you would follow me. That's what he wants. 
Oh, I, I hope, family, I long that the Spirit would lead us more into that kind of repentance. Because it's so good. It's so good. Jesus is so gracious. He wants your stuff. He wants your sin. He wants you to bring it to Him so He can cleanse you, purify you, remind you of who He's made you to be. You're His. That sin doesn't, identi- doesn't put an identity mark on you. Christ's blood does it. Don't shame what He's done for you. It's sufficient. It's absolutely finished. I know I'm speaking to some of you here. It's done. Don't let your sin stain you. Christ's blood has cleansed you. Receive it. And I believe this is why James is getting, in our last verse as we end here, when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you are in Jesus, you've been exalted to be co-heirs with Christ. You're raised in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2 says. You've been made new. You are free to receive God's love and relationship. That's what leads to humility. It doesn't, you've got to humble yourself in order to get that. He does it for you. That's who you are. You're free. Therefore, humble yourself. Receive his grace. You see, when we're hidden in Christ, God calls us friend. When we are being friends with the world, we're not living out of our new identity. He's calling us back to our new identity, and that's when we experience. When we're not, this is why sin leads us feeling empty, even separated from God at times, is because we're not living out of our new identity. It's not the way God's made us to be. That's why you feel that. And there's so many gifts in this room just waiting, I believe, just waiting to burst forth. And God is wanting you to realize that it starts with intimacy with him. Will we let him draw out of us what he's put in us? That's the question. Will we let him draw out of us what he's put in us? God has no problem healing. He has no problem saving the lost. He has no problem turning hard hearts into soft ones. He can do it. Are we willing to receive it? That's it. He wants to draw out what he's put in. To walk in this power and experience God's grace, we are to humble ourselves. If God gives grace to those who humble themselves, then humbling ourselves before God is how we experience his grace. That's how we experience it. We gain strength, not by our strength, but it's completely giving ourselves over to God and his will. So I'd love, as we close here, Brittany, I'd love you to come up. Put, put the slide up, what it, what it looks like to respond in humility. Those three things. Realize my greatest need is spiritual intimacy. Acknowledge in spiritual intimacy that communing with the Father, Son, and Spirit, there's nothing more important than that. And that acknowledging I can do nothing without God. It's his power and presence in, in every part of my life. Then last, desire to submit to God's will above all else. All else. In fact, uh, as I was working through this message this week, um, God convicted me. As I was just kind of meditating. Like, okay, if God, if you, intimacy is number one thing in my life, knowledge I can do nothing apart from you, and desiring to submit to your will above all else, what would that look like? Where, where are things in my life that that's not the case? And he brought up um, some relationships in my life where I'm hindering, I'm, excuse me, I'm holding on to some bitterness. And I've been doing it for a long time. And it was a really great time of processing with him. Just this idea of, because um, even, like, even within the relationships, there's a lot of excuses I can come up, come up with as to why there's bitterness there. But God just highlighted, reminded me that humble response looks like seeing intimacy with him is the most important thing in my life. And it allowed me 
to kind of just worship him in the moment. And it allowed me to ask him for a perspective on, the, on, on, on these people. And he brought all those things in very specific ways. Clarified some next steps for me to go forward and, and, and reconcile and work through some of those, those issues. I mean, he wants to specifically walk through healing. He wants to lead us to him in his presence. He wants us to walk this stuff out. He wants to lead this church. He wants to lead your household. He wants to lead your life. He wants to reach the city through us. He wants to do those things. Are we going to receive and listen? God is so good. I'm not, and, and please don't hear this. This isn't easy. This is very hard. I've been holding on to some of that bitterness for a while. Him having to work through that and still working through that, it's, it's painful. But man, there's nothing better. Intimacy with God is best and most important relationship. So what we're going to do in response to this passage is uh, we're going to take communion. And there's tables surrounding this area. Uh, we take communion because uh, we, we, we take the bread and dip it in the cup because it reminds us that Jesus um, was the perfect friend, as my sister said to, in the beginning of this message. He, he does all this perfectly. And yet he does it also for us in our place so that we can be united to God through him. And so what we do is we go to the table and we proclaim his death. We're reminded that one day we're actually going to sit in the, the, the wedding banquet feast with him and enjoy his presence fully. But today we also get to experience that. And so that's why we go to the tables for all those who put their faith in Jesus. And we're also to uh, respond through giving. You have baskets that will be passed around. And the reason why we do that is um, uh, we believe that is worship unto God as well. And what I want you to be thinking about is the fact that when God calls us to be a friend with him and not a friend of the world, I do believe money can be one of those things that pulls us away from friendship with God very easily. And see, I see some of you guys nodding your heads because you, you know this is true. Jesus taught, that's why Jesus talked a lot about money. God cares so much for our hearts. And I just want to encourage you to contemplate if there's any area in your heart where money is a stronghold, you can release it to God. If you're part of this church family, ask the Lord. Submit to him. Obey him. He's good. Wherever he's leading you to give in accordance with what the Spirit's leading you to do, do it in, with, with a cheerful heart. But don't do it until you hear it from him. Don't do it, do it until he gives you a cheerful heart. Work it out with the Lord. Work it out with others. I feel led to call us to that. Contemplate that. Talk about that with the Lord. We respond in giving. And, um, and then what, what we'll do right now is uh, you guys go ahead and stand up. And Brittany's going to lead us in a song. And I'd love for you, as you're singing in, in this song, um, to think about what area or what it looks like to respond in humility you might be at. Maybe there's some area you just need to thank God because he's doing a miraculous thing. Or maybe there's an area where you're lacking and hurting and you just need to ask God for help. As we're singing, by yourself, just contemplate that with God. And then I'll come up and I'll actually send us out. So stay where you are. We're going to just meditate and sing right now. So Holy Spirit, I pray you'd lead us to continue to worship you.